get out of time Looking back at what you've made of yourself It is now October 23rd, Friday. I think last we left off, I was leaving uh, maybe Spokane, Washington, heading to Seattle. Enjoyed my time in Seattle. They are about as COVID normal as, as any uh, area, but I uh, went to see the Space Needle. Got to see this sort of uh, glass blowing exhibit. This guy did some sick work. I ended up connecting with my uh, old friend Brian, who now lives in Seattle. I'm sure you guys will maybe remember the rock and roll fantasy I uh, tried to bring to life back in the day. Well, Brian was one of the guitarists for Real Love Diplomats. <laughs> and since I have a little time, I'll give you the backstory on, on this whole thing, because I don't think I really fully explained myself. Dev, you had not been born yet, and Aiden was uh, a, a big two-year-old, and I actually had a business trip down in Orlando, Florida. Got down there and did my thing, and then after work, headed downtown in hopes of listening to some live music. As I walked around, I ended up going into this sort of club bar, and there was this band that was on, and I kid you not, it was love... <laughs> Love at first here. Can I trust you with my future, babe? Should I make believe I will tell you, I was so impressed. And I remember like walking away thinking, why aren't these guys signed on the radio or touring the USA? But you don't have to ask me twice. And I went back to the hotel and that was just going through my head. So made my way back to, uh, to New York. And uh, a few days later, I actually ended up emailing Brian, the guitarist. <laughs> I'm sure he just kind of gushed over uh, the show. But from there, we, you know, we kind of became email pen pals. And I would say it was really, for me, the first time I had entered uh, social media via MySpace and was able to sort of follow along with where their, their gigs were and whatever, <laughs> whatever real love diplomat news was, was going on at the time. And I will say probably sometime in 2000, the boys decided it was time to uh, put down an album. I don't really remember the timeline, but... I ended up contributing little money uh, towards their studio time. I would say over the course of the year 2000, I would go down to Florida a couple times to see them. Actually hung out with them at their house. I got to sit in on practice session in their garage. I mean, how much more rock and roll can it be? You know, they were like, I don't know, I can't explain it. They, they had this sort of family thing going on, and 
as much as they were rock and roll, it wasn't it wasn't like hanging out with the Who. I would really love to know what they thought of me. <laughs> but you know what? They couldn't have been any nicer. Literally welcomed me into their home and uh, really sort of in a weird way into their inner circle. Peeking into their world, they were like so organized. Their girlfriends and their friends involved and obviously it takes a village. And you know what? They were, they, they had it going on. And there was five guys in the band and they each, they're each unique into themselves, but together, obviously they were, they were RLD. And I feel like I bonded with each of them over time. Mike was the singer whose voice first captured me. Jeff beat them drums. John was a badass bassist. And Jason and Brian are the guitarists. Probably one of my top concerts was... Radiohead on my birthday, August 17th, 2001. Brian and Jason had actually come up from Florida <laughs> and took me to the concert. And I will tell you guys, it was the most perfect weather. The, the setting, which was on Liberty State Park, as you looked at the stage with Radiohead in the middle, and then to one side was the Statue of Liberty, to the other side was the World Trade Center, and then Obviously, sadly enough, they would fall, right? A few weeks later, crazy. And they had it home and I pondered next moves. There was there was something about this band that, I don't know, tapped into my 80s DNA. And I guess I really wondered, were they too late? <laughs> were they too early? And so anyway, I believed their time was now. And to coexist in this world, for me, it was just, I don't know, it was sort of an outer body experience. But it was like I had this thing in me and I was going to find a way to get this band discovered and let people know what I know. So by this time, I had been working uh, in Times Square for probably like, I guess, ooh, about seven, eight years. I had handled this convention um, when I was in event services, which is probably, say, like 1996 or so, this particular convention was called uh, the BMG, Bertelsmann Music Group Convention. And it was, it, it was a convention all about music, and all the labels were there, and they had all these bands perform. So throughout the uh, convention, I was working like the on on the BMG side was this woman Patty, and this woman was just too freaking cool, like running this show, million different things going on at the same time. So in my mind, as I thought to the future of Real Love Diplomats, I was like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna reach out to this to this woman again, and sure enough, I did. As the album was coming together, I reached out and asked if I could come over and talk to her. So I went over to the to the Burlesman building, which is like across the street, and talked talked rock and roll and what it takes to break a band. And I think what I walked away from in my head from that meeting with her that she put much more elegantly was that, yeah, of course, the band and the music is important, too. But it's also about what's the flavor of the day. That's sort of what the labels look towards. And yeah, I mean, you know, part of me walked away thinking like, oh, gosh, the, I, think the, I think the real love diplomats don't really fit into the, to the mold of the day. But I believed in my heart that 
talented music would win out over the corporate America, I guess. Time goes on, and some point in 2001, which actually, <laughs> here we are, it's the 20th anniversary of the release of The Real Love Diplomats for the Good of the Many. The guys sent me, I swear to God, I must have gotten like 50 or 100 CDs. You know what, I'm going to say close to 100, which I was going to use, <laughs> again, uh, with all my contacts in New York City, hee-hee-ha-ha, <laughs> help break the band. And so there was some times where I thought I uh, had found the right connection to to make that happen. The first one was I had uh, I'd gotten an invite from uh, my boss at the time to go to this benefit concert at Carnegie Hall. And it was uh, it was for, for like Save the Rainforest and R.E.M. was performing. And obviously being a big fan, I was like super psyched. And also I got my head and I, I so I brought one of the CDs with me thinking, how <laughs> how am I going to get this into uh, to Michael Stipe's hand, the lead singer? As R.E.M. was winding down, I get up out of my seat and I shuffle down to the front of the stage. I get to the stage and I, I get up on my tippy toes. As Michael Stipe is walking off the stage, stage right, I slide the CD He's he probably a good six feet from me. I slide the CD. As he's making his way off, he leans down, picks it up <laughs> without breaking stride. And I was like, oh, my God, that's so cool. As he kind of fades in behind the curtain. Never heard from Michael Stipe. And so the beat went on. The next, uh, I guess, opportunity I tried to make, I had a, a couple friends that worked over at MTV this was like the daily music show of the time. One time I had gotten one of my contacts to kind of get me an intro to Carson Daly, who was the, the VJ uh, of TRL. On this particular day, I'm backstage before TRL starts and I get introduced to him. Hi, how are you? And so I hand him the, the CD and I say, when you get a chance, have a listen. Tell me what you think. I'd love to hear from you. And he's like, all right, yeah, sure, no problem, cool. He goes, I'm actually going to be starting uh, my own thing uh, soon or something and always looking for a new band. Left there, super stoked, and on cloud nine, waited for the big call. And the big call never came. But like three weeks later, I got invited to go to a Nick game. And uh, so we're at the garden. And at one point, I look over and behind the net... Who's sitting there? Carson Daly. And I was like, oh my God. And we had decent seats. So I figured out my little plan. And so at one point I walked down my stairs and I walk over and sort of, I walk up the row that I know I'm going to walk by where he is. And as I'm walking by, I look over him and I guess I hesitate for a minute. And then he ends up looking at me. I was like, Hey, Carson, did you ever get a chance to listen to the CD? <laughs> he looked at me, and, and I'm not sure if he knew who I was or what, but he awkwardly said, oh, not yet, or, or something, and I, uh, I decided I, I wasn't going to um, 
bother this guy anymore. And so I just kind of acknowledged him and I walked up the uh, stairs and did what I had to do. So realized, uh, you know what, <laughs> it's gonna be a little tougher than I thought it was, but I, I had my, uh, my big try coming up. I want to say some point after I'd gotten the CDs, I put together this gift basket Inside the gift basket, I had the CDs. They got some scented candles. I even put in a couple like uh, portable CD players. I have no idea why I would do that. I had my big plan for uh, getting them over there. And at the time, we were moving from Astoria up to Main Street. It just happened that the woman who was taking over our apartment worked at BMG. So on the day of my delivery, I, I, honestly, I felt, I think, a little awkward uh, reaching out to Patty directly. So I arranged to meet, to get to this, see this woman, like see her office or whatever the case was. So I show up there. I meet with this woman. You know, we have some small talk. I'm carrying my gift basket. And then after a while, I go out to the elevator bank and I take it up two more flights to Patty's office floor. And I come out and there's a big reception desk. There's, there's gold records, and <laughs> platinum records on the walls. And I go up to the receptionist and I, I put the basket up there and I said, hi, uh, this is for uh, Patty. Can you, you know, pass it on? And so uh, she said, yeah, sure, no problem. I left it there and went back uh, to my real life. And not even like a couple hours later, my phone rings. It's Patty and my heart drops. And I'm like, Oh my God, I can't believe she's called me back already. And actually, so a little backstory to the backstory is that around this time, there was some psycho in the world that was mailing this anthrax powder to various corporate buildings and other institutions. What was already a crazy world post 9-11 now gets doubly crazy with anthrax. And so Patty, she says to me, she goes, Paul, how did you get in the building? And I was like, oh, I um, I was visiting a friend. And then I, she's like, oh, gosh. She goes, okay, yeah. Uh, there was some concern that there was a, a lax in security. And with everything going on, it was it was quite alarming and blah, 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 blah. And I was like, oh, okay. She's like, all right, take care. everything you have Regardless, uh, the dream continued, and I will say probably late 2001. So by now, I want to say Nora's probably uh, not yet born. Devin, you're with us, and Aiden, the big uh, brother, is still with us. And so the uh, this time the album has been released. They actually, one of their songs made the radio uh, down in Florida, and the boys got booked into CBGB's and we're going to come up to New York and play the ultimate venue. Just decided that they would stay at the house. And so mommy, God bless her, decided it would be best that she and, and, and you guys uh, head out east uh, to see Nanny and Da for a while. I had rented a van. I picked them up at the airport. They had all their instruments. We went back to the house, hung out. To me, it was just freaking cool to be in their presence uh, because obviously I, I thought their music was amazing. And I'll never forget Mike, the singer, 
he had uh, so for the first time I got to see an iPod. I had never seen one before. It must have been somewhat new, but it was like the size of a cigarette pack. Yet it held like a kabillion songs, and I was just like, "Oh my god, this is amazing!" And uh, oh, actually, you know what's funny? So Mike, Mike too is like an amazing artist. And I don't know if you remember this, but in the basement we had like a little, you know, a little classroom set up or the chalkboard table thing, and he had drawn you guys a Spider-Man, which was like <laughs> as authentic as a Spider-Man can look in chalk. I don't think we erased that thing for quite a long time so made an impression so the, the night came we, we drove down to the bowery and you know what it was again i think i've used this word a thousand times but it was surreal it was so cool and i'll tell you this someone in the entourage videotaped this i never got to see it to this day it's still haunts me and I somehow some way I am going to see this in the future and I will tell you this too after all those CDs I had and over the whatever the 20 years since I do not have one CD left and if you guys ever see that around the house can you please let me know I want to put that in my memory box <laughs> anyway and so when they got back I think there was more gigs and I think someone wanted to get was going to get married someone else was going back to school and it was sort of the end of the real up diplomats. As sad as it was, you know what? I mean, I look back, I hope they feel the same way. It was, it was freaking awesome. Music in this episode is courtesy of Epidemic Sound and Blue Dot Sessions. A special thanks goes out to Real Up Diplomats for providing the soundtrack to Don't Call It a Memoir.